Well, Maddie Fletcher was supposed to play special music for us today on her saxophone. But there was a little mix-up with her school. Her main saxophone had some problems, and they sent it off into the shop to work on. And the music teacher didn't show up on Friday to give her the spare, so she's out of sax. (laughs) Unfortunately. So hopefully, we'll get her back in the schedule, and she'll be able to play special music for us. I was really looking forward to that. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today. We've been on this passage, this main passage that that we're going to be studying for uh, two weeks now. We started last week, gave some background, and now we're diving into it more this week, and we'll wrap it up next week before we move on into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Have you ever lost focus on a project before? (laughs) There's some liars over here. seems that every week I struggle when, with my sermon. I struggle with focus when I'm working on my sermon. Maggie and I had a little heart-to-heart a couple weeks ago. We were talking about the pressures and stresses that were on her, pressures and stresses, stressors that was on me. Uh, and I told her that lots of times when I'm preparing my sermon, it's like I'm struggling with Satan the entire time. I open up the passage, start reading it, start thinking about what the passage is talking about, and all of a sudden, I get hit, smack in the face with all sorts of distractions, distractions from within me, distractions from without of me, and I lose focus, and I have to fight to get back and start working again on the sermon, and then I lose focus again, and I come back and I have to start working on the sermon again, and as I try to wrestle with it, to see, okay, what does the passage say? What does this body need to hear from this passage? It's hard work, and I lose focus all the time. I I think about Peter sometimes as I'm working on the sermon. I think about Peter sitting in the boat. You might remember the story. He and the rest of the disciples had just experienced Jesus turning five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 men plus women and children with 10 basketfuls left over. They just experienced all that. They're in shock. Jesus sends them ahead across the Sea of Galilee, and he says, I will join you. Disciples have no idea how it's going to happen. So they get in the boat. Wind comes up. Storm hits the sea. They're tossed on the waves. Jesus is on the land. He does crowd control, sends the people home, goes off by himself to pray. Middle of the night, the disciples are scared out of their mind on the sea, and all of a sudden, they look, and Jesus comes walking on the water. What would you have thought? I'm dreaming. They say, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. This cannot happen. It is physically impossible for someone to walk on water. Therefore, it must be a ghost. Jesus calls out while he's standing there on the waves, kind of bobbing up and down, up and down. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. It is I. And Peter, the brave man that he is, yells over the wind and waves to Jesus and says, if it is really you, tell me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, steps down one foot on the water, two feet on the water. Water's holding him up. He's walking on water. And then he takes his eyes off of Jesus, feels the wind, sees the waves, and starts to sink. Peter 
lost focus off of the person who could carry him through the storms of this life. Jesus reached out his hand, grabs a hold of Peter, hauls him up into the boat, and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter is us. Peter is me. It is human to lose focus. It is human to take our eyes off of Jesus. It's human even in the middle of a worship service when we are here because we have declared ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. In the middle of the worship service to take our eyes off of him and think about all the things that are happening this week think about all the things that our husband or wife did, think about all the things the kids did, do all the schedules and all these things. Our mind is going rapidly this way, that way, this way, that way, and we lose focus off the one we're here to actually worship. And if we can take our eyes off of Jesus today, boy, heaven help us during the week. It's so easy to lose focus focus. Our goal in a worship service is to realign our focus so that hopefully we can keep it on Jesus the rest of the week. The Corinthians were having a problem with this because in their worship service, they weren't focusing on Jesus at all. They were focusing on themselves and how they could boost themselves and how they can make other people feel good. So Paul in this passage is encouraging the Corinthians. He is exhorting the Corinthians to change the way that they worship. Last week, we talked about the attitude of worship. We talked about humility. We talked about unity. We talked about service. And then we talked about focus. And this week, we're going to dive into that point of focus of worship. Let's read the whole passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 33. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Last week, we talked about the first few verses, and we talked about the background, the historical things that are going on. And if you want some of that, you can go back and listen to that sermon. 
This week we're going to be focusing on verses 23 to 26. We're going to talk about the focus of worship. And before we dive in, will you pray with me? Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, you are holy, perfect, set apart without a stain of sin, without a particle of imperfection. You are God, the creator and sustainer of all things, and you alone are worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy to be lifted up. Lord, when we see you truly for who you are, we're in awe that you would care to have a relationship with us, miserable sinners, because so often we live apart from you. So often, even though we declare ourselves your people, we do not live like it. We take our eyes off of you throughout the week and we focus on ourselves and our desires. We focus on our pride, what we want, and we react according to it. Lord, forgive us of that. Teach us what it means to truly follow you, to have you as our focus throughout the week, even more so on Sunday as worship. Teach us what it means to give you priority and to follow where you lead, even though it might get in the way of our daily lives and what we think we want to do. Lord, be our consuming fire. Be our obsession. Because you, Lord, truly are worthy. Today, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. So today we're going to talk about the focus of worship. In one word, the focus of worship is Jesus. That's it. I could stop preaching right now because you've gotten the main sense of the sermon. Our focus is Jesus. But you pay me to be long-winded. So, here we go. Focus on Jesus, his life. This passage that we're talking about is an explanation of the Lord's Supper, explanation of communion, Eucharist, whatever term you want to throw at it and call it by. If you want to know why there's different terms for this ritual, we can talk sometime. I'd love to explain it to you, the different reasons why we, those different words are said. And if you come and say, oh, but I'm afraid of taking up too much of your time because you're so busy. I will say thank you for noticing that I am busy. But I love talking to people who want to know more about Bible, who want to know more about Jesus, who need help. So let me know. Just make an appointment and I'll fit it in. But I always make time for people who want to talk about these sorts of things. For the early church, the Lord's Supper was the culmination of their service. They would sing. They would listen to teaching about the Bible and about Jesus And then they would take the Lord's Supper as a commitment of following Jesus until they met again, as a commitment of saying, hey, I've learned about Jesus, therefore I'm going to apply these truths to my life and I'm going to take the Lord's Supper as a symbol of that commitment. It's one reason why we here at church, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month, we take it at the end of the service. It's the culmination of the service. The It was a way of snapping their focus back to Jesus, which is always what we need. The formula or the ritual surrounding 
the Lord's Supper, especially what we do here at Calvary Bible Church, is specifically worded. Uh, we take it directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here because we are about the Bible and we just want to replicate what the Bible says. It's very specifically worded for several things. First, it brings a focus on Jesus' life, as our point number one says. A focus on Jesus' life. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night who was betrayed, took bread. We haven't even gotten to what Jesus said. Paul is telling us something that Jesus did. This is not something that is metaphorical. This is not something that is an illustration. This is not something that is a story, that a legend that has been passed down over time. We believe that Jesus is a literal person who lived 2,000 years ago. His birth was witnessed by his mom, by his dad. When he was a baby, it was, he was witnessed by the shepherds. He was witnessed by the wise men. As he grew up and moved to Nazareth, everyone in that small town knew who Jesus was. Just like anyone in a small town knows who everyone is, they knew Jesus. When he grew up and he traveled around Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, everyone in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria knew who he was. The fact that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago is not contested. Every historian who's worth his salt will say that Jesus is a literal person who lived 2,000 years ago. No one says anything else. The fact that Jesus was a great and moral teacher is also not contested. In fact, if you study other religions, they will actually laud Jesus as a great and moral teacher. The Quran that the Muslims read in the Quran tells them, learn about Jesus, go and study the Bible so you can. It's what it says. That is my English translation of it. It says it a lot more wordy. But it's what it says. It is not contested. We know that Jesus literally lived and that he literally lived in a specific way. And our focus as followers of Jesus Christ should be to know his life so that we can imitate how he lived. How did he live? His life is about dying so that others might live. A passage that we've gone to several times over these last few months is Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. The author of Philippians, Paul, says of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus left the glories of heaven to live among us. When he became an, a, an adult, he left the great lucrative occupation of carpenter of his time. It was a great occupation to have. You always had work and good work, but he left that good work to become a homeless man, wandering around Galilee, Judea, and Samaria. Why? Well, Matthew chapter 8 tells us that a teacher of the law comes to him and says, hey, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to his lay his head. Jesus says, I don't have a home. I don't have a home. I gave it all up. Why did he do this? So he could help the world out of their shameful existence and into the hope of a relationship with the creator of the universe. That's why he did it. He wandered around the countryside, and as he wandered around the countryside, he was met by crowds, and he looked on all those crowds with compassion. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 36. 
Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked on all these people, every single one that came to him. It didn't matter who they were. It didn't matter how people viewed them or what they thought. He looked on them with compassion. And his compassion drove him to help them physically with their diseases, with their sicknesses. He helped them physically, but his compassion also drove him to help them spiritually. Every single person he met, yes, he healed them, but he also told them the truth, and he taught them about the kingdom of God. His compassion drove to help physically and spiritually both, not one or the other. His continual dying to self in order to help others culminated on the night before he died. Right before he ate the last supper that we celebrate once a month, the Lord's Supper, he washed his disciples' feet. Even though he was the master, he took on the role of a servant so to tell his followers, hey, you are supposed to do the same. You are to have the attitude of a servant with whoever you're with. Jesus then left that upper room after the Lord's Supper. He went into the garden. And while he was there, even up to his betrayal by Jesus, he was still teaching and caring for his disciples spiritually. It's what he is about. When he was hanging on the cross, he was caring for those around him spiritually. He looked at all these people who were hurting him physically by nailing him to the cross, but emotionally by ridiculing and abusing him. And he said, Father, forgive them. He looked at, his, at John and at his mother and said, John, take care of my mom. Even till his last breath, he had compassion on people. Jesus' life majored on giving to others, meeting physical and spiritual needs. So when we come together and worship, our focus is on Jesus. It is on his life. How did he live so that we can turn around and live the same way towards others? But our focus is not just on Jesus' life, but it is on his death. Jesus takes the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, Do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus said this, the disciples were floored at what he said. Because Jesus, as the officiant of the Passover meal, the one who's leading it, has a specific script that he is supposed to follow. It's called the Haggadah, which is a lot of fun to say. Haggadah. It's the script. And the the meal is opened by a blessing that is given to God that Jesus probably about 99% sure, said, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the produce of the earth. That's what started by. Then the person officiating over the Passover will then lift up the bread, will break it, and will say, this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. That is what they're supposed to say. It is important to note that no one eating the Passover meal When they see that bread lifted up and hear those words, this is the bread of affliction that the forefathers ate in Egypt. No one thought that that piece of bread literally became the Passover bread that was eaten in Egypt. No Israelite ever thought that. The wording was specifically designed to draw the participant into remembering all that Israel went through in their redemption. So they could picture themselves in the past 
as slaves, as needing rescued by God, remembering their salvation so they could worship him even better now, transports them back instead of transporting the back here. Jesus, though, when he lifts up the bread, does not say this is the bread of the affliction. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The disciples had been shocked at this radical change from tradition. Shocked so much that it was seared in their minds that they were able to pass it down word for word, generation to generation, to us. Because those words that Jesus said 2,000 years ago are the exact words that we say once a month when we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus urged his disciples by doing this to celebrate this meal in remembrance of him. Just as the Passover was in remembrance of what God did for the Israelites, rescuing them out of Egypt, the breaking of the bread, eating it together, symbolized Jesus' death, something we do to remember his death. And he takes the unleavened loaf there in front of the disciples and he breaks it apart. As he breaks it apart, he is graphically symbolizing his body being torn apart. Now we here, as people who know some a little bit about history and who might have seen the passion of Jesus Christ or any other movie that might have been made about the death of Jesus, we know how Jesus has died. But in our sanitized society, we don't often allow ourselves to remember how Jesus died as we take communion. As we crunch down on our little wafers and we hear the bread break apart in our mouth and we feel that happen, we don't always picture Jesus' body being broken. We don't hear the slash of the whip across his back as his skin is torn apart from the bone. We don't see the crown of thorns being drilled down into his skull. We don't picture the nails being driven into Jesus' hands and feet. As his arms are stretched across the cross, we don't hear and feel the bones popping out of their sockets. As he breathes his last agonizing breath, We don't experience the tearing of his flesh as the spear is stabbed into his side. We know amazingly that none of his bones were broken on that cross. But we do know that on the cross, his body was torn apart just as he tore that bread apart. When we come together to worship, our focus is on his death because the death, his death is why we are here. When we crunch that cracker, our focus should be on his death because Jesus died the death we should have died. When he hung on the cross experiencing all that horrible pain, he took our sin on his shoulders and bore that sin to the grave. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God Jesus' death was the natural result of his life. He came to earth for the purpose of dying for us. He lived his life to give it literally to others. In his own words, John 15, 13, greater love has no one this, to lay down one's life for his friends. John records for us in the famous passage, 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Earlier in that chapter in John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he looks at Nicodemus straight in the face and explains that he has to die. Jesus has to die. In John 3, 14 to 15, he tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. As we worship Jesus, whether it's taking the Lord's Supper or whether it's every Sunday morning or if it's every day as we pursue him with our lives, we have to remember his death because his death brought us life. His death was the reason for existence. And if we forget his death, our faith is lost. Our focus here is on Jesus' life. Our focus is on his death. If you follow the timeline our focus is on his redemption, his redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. In the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, remember, the G- Jesus is leading the disciples through the Passover meal, but he's changing specific parts of it to reflect his upcoming salvation, his upcoming redemption that he's about to give. Through the Passover meal, the participants drink four different cups of wine or grape juice, each cup symbolizing something very important about the Passover. The first cup was drunk at the very beginning of the meal. It was called the cup of sanctification. It celebrated that the Jews were a people that were set apart for God by God. That's why he rescued them. That's why he gave them the commandments. They were his special people. So they drank that cup celebrating that they were his special people. After they drank that cup, they would then tell the story of the, the saving out of Egypt, the story of the Passover, the story of the 10 plagues, all of that. After they told the story, they would then drink the cup of deliverance or the cup of praise. They were drinking it, symbolizing, hey, we are the people who have been delivered, and we are praising God for his deliverance, both the deliverance that happened leading us out of Egypt, but also the deliverance that has constantly happened as the Israelites are his people. After the meal was eaten, so they'd drink the first cup, they'd break some bread, they would tell the story, they would drink the second cup, they would eat the rest of the meal and the Passover lamb. Then after the meal, they would drink a third and a fourth cup. The third cup was the cup of redemption. When the Jewish people uh, used it to praise God for redeeming them out of the Egyptian bondage, but also redeeming them from the Egyptian false gods, saying that because because of what God did, they didn't have to worship false gods anymore. They had a covenant with the one true God. The fourth cup was the cup of acceptance or the cup of anticipation. And it celebrated the relationship that God desires with his people. These are the four cups in Passover. Jesus takes the third cup at this time and hands it to the disciples. And he doesn't refer to redemption from, for Israel from Egypt to them. Instead, he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. He says, before you were living under the covenant of the law, God redeemed you out of Egypt. He saved you physically. He gave you a law to follow as a covenant to me. Now there's a new covenant 
that is being given. The old is gone, the new has come. It is a covenant of redemption, spiritual salvation through grace that is offered through Jesus and only Jesus. That's it. Incidentally, Jesus doesn't take the fourth cup at this time, the cup of anticipation. He doesn't take it. Matthew chapter 26, talking about what happened, he, said, he takes this third cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He gives them the cup of the new covenant that we celebrate, and he says, there is a day coming when I will drink that fourth cup with you, when we will all live in eternity, in unbroken relationship with our God who did it all to have a relationship with us. Jesus died for us that we might be saved. Not just saved from our sins, but he died for us that we might be saved, that we might have an eternal relationship with the creator of the universe. He wants to know us and he wants to be known by us. And he gives us this redemption through grace. We read John 3.16 earlier. Well, Jesus had continued in John 3.17 to 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that anyone who has ever breathed stands condemned by God because of our lives, because the sin that we do, the sin that we think, the sin that we say, we are all sinners and we stand condemned by God. We start out that way, desperately in need of God's grace. So God looked down on us in love, in compassion, and he extended his grace to us. He sent his son, Jesus, to come to earth for the purpose of dying, for the purpose of taking our sin, all of our sins, every single one of them, on himself. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is, there we go, it went a little farther. There we go. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, not only do we stand sinless because he paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future, but we stand completely righteous because all of his righteousness, past, present, and future, has been given to us. The amazing thing about this amazing gift is that we don't have to do anything to earn it. We don't. There are some churches who, who claim to follow the word of God and to study it, and they say that we have to earn our salvation. Some of them use terms like sacraments, telling people that they have to earn bits of grace. And ironically, a lot of them will actually use the Lord's Supper and say that we have to take this Lord's Supper in order to earn what Jesus already earned for us. But Jesus' redemption is a free gift. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift that all we have to do is receive. 
John chapter one, verses 12 to 13. Yet to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The Bible is clear that good works, religious rituals, do nothing for our salvation. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So why do so many churches teach that we have to do something, that we have to do things, like participate in Jesus' sacrifice every week as the elements are magically changed into being his body so that he can be crucified again for us every week and our sins can be forgiven because we have done that. Why do they say things like we have to be baptized in order to do something to earn his grace? Why do we, he, they say that we have to do certain prayers or we have to tithe or we have to attend church or anything else we might bring up? Why do they say that? Because unfortunately... When, when we put these man-made requirements before the gracious work of Jesus, they have removed our focus from God's redemption. They've removed the focus from Jesus from our worship and placed our gaze on ourselves and our weaker humanity. And whenever we take our focus off of Jesus and place it on ourselves, we are lost because we can do nothing. He is our only hope. It is him. It is him. Our focus should instead be on the gracious, glorious gift of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, his redemption for us. Remember that he saved us. We didn't have to do anything because we could do nothing. Because of his graciousness, because of his death, when we make that decision to believe in Jesus, receive him as our Savior and say, you are my only hope, He's given us a personal relationship. He hasn't just forgiven our sins once. He's forgiven all of them, and he's given us a way that we can have a relationship with him. We can talk with him. We can walk with him. He can carry us through life, forgiving our sins every day, not because of rituals we do, but because he died for them 2,000 years ago. And when we see that, he wells in us a love for him and desire to live for him every single day pushing us to do this walk with him, not because we're earning something, but because he is worthy of everything we can do for him. And ultimately, one day he will carry us into eternity where we will live forever on this earth again in perfection. The redemption that Jesus offers every time that we lift up that cup and say, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it in remembrance of him. Every time that we take the Lord's Supper, every time we meet in worship service, every time we interact with fellow believers, every time we wake up, we should have the focus of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ because it has changed everything for us. Our focus is Jesus, his life. It is his death. It is his redemption. And finally, our focus is his proclamation. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This verse is pretty self-explanatory. Except, how does eating a piece of bread and drinking a cup proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again? How does he do it? I can testify that my wife makes amazing food. 
She does. She's a great cook. You want to come over sometime? We'll cook, she'll cook you something. However, I can also testify that when my kids are sitting down and eating her amazing food, though they are eating it with their mouths, they are not proclaiming her amazing culinary abilities. It is human to complain. Eating does not mean you are proclaiming something that is good. So what is he talking about? Biblically, if you study the term remembrance, remembrance is a participation in a truth that results in a changed life. It is a knowledge that produces action. That is what remembrance is. It's shown in four ways. In the Old Testament, when someone remembered something, they reflected on a truth in a way that resulted in gratitude, worship, trust, acknowledgement, and obedience. I only had room for two of those words. I think about the Israelites. They entered the promised land. They had been saved miraculously out of Egypt. They'd saved, been saved miraculously through 40 years of wandering in the desert. They came to the promised land. They conquer it miraculously. And the next minute, it says they did not remember God and they turned to other idols. God sends them oppressors to come and conquer them. They cry out to God. God saves them miraculously by judges. In the middle of all that cycle of disobedience, because they turn from God again, it's recorded for us in Judges 8, 33 to 34. No sooner had Gideon, one of these judges, died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Parith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Remembrance is remembering the truth of God and causing that truth to turn us back to God in worship. Taking communion is a remembrance. It's reflecting on truth and allowing that truth to turn us back to God in worship. Unfortunately, too many of us, we've taken communion so often that we just take the cracker and we eat it. We take the juice and we drink it. You go to some churches who take it every week and it's just something that's rote, that it's done over and over and over again. And they, they mutter their thing and mutter that thing and they, they do that and they do this and they eat and they drink and they go back to their seat. It doesn't become a worship thing, but it's supposed to be a remembrance, a reflecting on truth and causing us to turn to God in worship. Remembrance is also an identity with the past. An identity with the past. The Jews remembered the Passover every year when God rescued them out of Egypt. They would say, this is the bread of the suffering that was eaten right before the Passover. They say, these are the herbs. This is the sacrifice. They didn't believe that this actually became those things, but they were identifying themselves with the past. They were the Israelites who had been rescued by the mighty hand of God, and they wanted to remember that. When we take communion, we are identifying ourselves with Christ's sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago. We are saying that, yes, our sin was on the cross because he died for us, earning our redemption. Our sin was there. And Jesus is here because he's alive. He's not in the bread or the juice, but he, is, he rose again, therefore his, he is here with us. It's, a, it's going back to the past. It's a, it's a remembering how God saved us a reflection on God's personal work. It's a, a thinking about the radical change that happened in our lives. Too often we let that fire in our lives go out so easy and we become apathetic and callous to the work of God. We forget what it was like when we first heard about Jesus, the excitement of realizing, my goodness, 
My sins are completely forgiven, completely wiped away, and I don't have to do anything. I can live forever in eternity and perfection with God, not because of what I've done, but because of him alone. That joy that happens, and when we remember that, we remember that experience, that emotion, it lights a fire in us and urges us to continue living just as if we had just experienced God's work in our lives. It pushes us to do that. Finally, remembrance, while it's looking back of what God has done, it's looking forward to the amazing eternity that's waiting for us. The fact that he who began a good work in us will complete it in the name of Jesus Christ. And if we reflect on what is promised to us in the future, the amazingness there, it'll push us to live the future today. All that is why Paul says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Remembrance is a proclamation of Christ's death because we're reflecting on the truth, not just with our minds, but with our lives, our actions. We proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection. We proclaim his redemption through our life and our lifestyle. As we have this understanding of everything that Christ went through and our understanding of our identity as Christians, those who share the identity and mission of Christ. It's fitting that the early church would take communion at the end of their service because they did consider it an application, a commitment to the application of the sermon, that they would remember what Jesus did. And by taking the elements, they were vowing to live what Jesus did. They would live what Jesus was calling to by their actions, proclaiming his salvation every single day, turning our focus back to him. Our worship whether we take the Lord's Supper, definitely, but every week is called to turn our focus back to Jesus Christ so that others might see him in us every single day. The focus of worship, his life, his death, his redemption, his proclamation. Now, my question for you. If you have made the decision to trust in Jesus for your life, all this is for you. That's what our focus is. But if you are sitting here and you have never made the decision yourself to trust Jesus for your salvation, you've never made the decision to believe and receive, but in your life you have spent your time trusting in all the things you have done, whether it is the fact that you've taken Lord's Supper or you've been baptized or you've gone through confirmation or confession, you've gone through all these different things, you've done good works, you've attended church every single day of your life, You've done trust in all these things, but you've never personally made the decision to trust in Jesus. I ask you today to do it because if you've trusted in all these things that you have done, your focus can't be him because you don't know him. He's not saved you. The only way to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to have your sins forgiven and eternity guaranteed is to turn and believe in Jesus to make the decision. And once you do, he offers you that relationship. He offers you that forgiveness. He offers you that eternity to come. So I urge you today, make that decision so you can start having the focus of him through life. And I guarantee you will see a change. You will see hope. You will see peace. You will see all sorts of things that you've never seen before because finally, you'll be able to focus on him. If you have any questions on how to do that, please come up and talk with me. Talk with someone. 
and don't let today go by. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the salvation that you give through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we do not have to do anything to earn it and forgive us for all the times that we have tried to earn our forgiveness, to earn our salvation, and not realizing that we are sinful humans who cannot do it. Lord, we confess that you alone are worthy and we praise you for sending your son to die for us. We ask that every single day we would live with you as our focus and we would not allow all this world to get in the way, but you would be our focus. And then when people see us, they would see something different because you are our focus and they would want to have that and help them as they see us to turn to you in faith, to believe in you and give up all these other things. For you alone, Lord, are worthy. You alone, Lord, are the way. We confess that. Thanks, Father. Amen.